Eloise, are you are you a human or are you AI? I cannot tell. Are you like the are you like the Jesuit Siri? <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the yearningly young, helplessly hip, and lovingly lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Hello, Internet. <laughs> Why? You, I feel like every week and you do something and weird. <laughs> he never just says, hey, listeners, yeah. I'm here. Hey, I'm Ashley. Hey, Olga. Trying to sp- uh, hey, Ashley. Hey, Olga. <laughs> hey, Zach. Good to be with you. <laughs> good to be with you, too. <laughs> How are you guys doing? Great. Pretty good. Yeah. The weather's yeah. beautiful. Summer has come. Winter, we we skipped gone. over spring. Yep. We're going straight <laughs> yeah, to summer. Yeah. In yep. typical New York fashion. I tried to request recording outside today. I, w- I said, yeah. Eloise, can we have class outside today? <laughs> Eloise said, no, we cannot move the studio. Well, to we the park. could not bring Jesuitical outside, so we brought the summer into the studio with what's on tap. So this week we're drinking margaritas because yes. it feels like a summary drink mm-hmm. and it that's what we got on tap this week yeah, so, so to, to margs to margs i suggested margs and <laughs> olga was like what is a marg i've never heard of this term before and it upset me so much i'm like maybe i live in my little bronx bubble but i've never heard marg before <laughs> is this what heard, the rest of america you haven't says? heard how you, your, your white co-host said co, like co-opted the term <laughs> you really need to go to brunch more yeah. <laughs> all right so cheer, so cheers to our margs cheers, cheers. Yes. <laughs> all right And who is our guest this week, Olga? So today we're really excited to be talking with Wajahat Ali. He is a contributing op-ed writer for the New York Times. He writes on religion, family, and politics. And he's also the producer of an Emmy-nominated series, The Secret Life of Muslims, which is a pretty Mm -hmm. cool show. We all checked it out, right? Yeah, Yeah, no, it's really good. It profiles just an everyday average American Muslim and doing Mm -hmm. their everyday average American life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they do that. A uh, new person every week. So uh, we'll have a link for that in our show notes, but uh, really great conversation. I'm excited to share it with our listeners. Yeah. But first, uh, a word from our sponsors. Uh, today's show is sponsored by the Catholic Travel Center, which has been a proud partner with American Media for four years. Uh, they host pilgrimages to Italy, Spain, and the Holy Land. Catholic Travel Center is the customized pilgrimage specialist serving the Catholic community for more than 25 years. To organize your organization's next pilgrimage, contact Catholic Travel Center at gocatholictravel.com. You're very good at that. Yeah. I, I'm convinced. I, I want to go there now. I'm, you, you should. You should check them out. No, I, I, Olga and I have both benefited from Catholic Travel mm-hmm. Center and mm-hmm. our pilgrimages in the Holy Land yeah. and Spain and Rome, and they are great, and yeah. I would yeah. highly recommend them Agreed. for mm-hmm. all your pilgrimage needs. Yes. <laughs> all right, but now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of the show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Uh, first, This week, we learned that Cardinal George Pell, uh, the highest ranking Catholic in Australia, will stand trial um, on charges of sexual abuse dating back decades. And this Uh, was kind of expected, yes? Yeah. So there had been months of hearings where he his defense lawyers made their case. The accusers made their case. And it was up to this magistrate to decide whether he would actually stand trial by jury. Um, And the political wins were made it pretty likely that he was going to. People um, are very angry at the, the church. church and Cardinal Pell uh, in, in particular. And he is the uh, most senior Vatican official to be charged um, in the sex abuse crisis. Uh, so we will be following this in the coming months and maybe years. What's next, Olga? So some more news coming out of the Vatican. I don't know if you guys heard, but Katy Perry was just at the Vatican. She met 
Pope Francis along with Orlando Bloom and her mom. No, like how do they meet Pope Francis? And I we know. Don't? Like, it, <laughs> I feel like every epi- every other episode we make a plug to get invited to the Vatican. Yep, and I don't know how many Twitter followers we've got to get before they're like, "Oh, you can come give a talk about you right." Know, whatever. We're all, we're all verified. Does that not count for <laughs> yeah. something? So, so what did what what was Katy Perry? Doing at the Vatican, exactly. So the Vatican hosts an annual conference. It's the Unite to Cure conference, which brings together thought leaders from around the world, and they all discuss the future of medicine. So she was there. So Dr. Katy Perry. So basically, <laughs> Dr. Katy Perry, she was there to talk about meditation and the role that it's played in her life. Ah. Yeah, yeah. She was there with celebrity meditation teacher Bob Roth. All right, so we're just waiting, Vatican, whenever you whenever yeah. you want to have us. Yep. <laughs> What's right. next, Zach? So next story, uh from the Vatican to Germany, the Bavarian government, the Bavarian region of Germany, the state government has ordered that crucifixes be placed at the entrance of all government buildings. Uh, the, yes. Wow. You're giving. They're oh, allowed to do that. Yes. Oh, Ashley and Olga are giving me a, sort of a wide-eyed look because it sounds <laughs> kind of crazy. But yes, uh, they are allowed to do that. And starting June 1st, that's the order. So is Bavaria like super Catholic? Yes. So that region of Germany is very Catholic. Uh, and so they're saying that uh, the, the government is defending this by saying it's not meant to be looked at as a religious symbol, but more of a cultural symbol. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is a little bit because it's also saying like all these other religious groups are not part, part of, of the culture. Yes. <laughs> right. And surprisingly, this is getting pushback from not only from non-Catholics, but Catholics. Uh, Reinhard right. Marx, the, he's a cardinal and the head of the German Bishop Conference. Um he said that it's wrong to instrumentalize the the cross. Like, this is not how it's meant to be used. Right, um, and that this has caused division, unrest, and it's pitting people against each other. Um, and that the Catholic Church favored a different approach to promote dialogue among Christians, Muslims, Jews, and non-believers. So there's even the Catholic pushback is getting some pushback from other circles of the Catholic world. The Austrian nuncio uh, is sort of... Uh, lambasted the German bishops for criticizing the decision to put the crosses on public buildings. Oh my gosh. Um, this is very complicated. <laughs> I know. And he's, he's in saying uh, Archbishop uh, Zurbriggen vehemently took issue with Cardinal Marx saying, as Nuncio, as the Holy Father's representative, I'm deeply saddened and ashamed that when crosses are erected in a neighboring country, bishops and priests of all people protested. And he, he threw around this phrase of being religiously correct in that getting on his nerves. Oh, um, so I, I am curious to see if this trickles back upstream. He mentioned being the Holy Father's representative. I'm wondering if the Holy Father's going to weigh in on this. Uh, And this sort of is a nice segue into our next story, Ashley, about sort of religion in public spaces. (laughs) Some state state Catholic relations. Um, So you guys have probably heard that the Jesuit chaplain of the house was forced to resign by Catholic Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, uh, last week. Uh, And the, the chaplain of the house is not he was a Catholic. He was a Jesuit, but he's not just a chaplain for Catholics. He is a chaplain for the entire chamber. So this is a Jesuit priest, uh, Patrick Conroy, uh, and he had served since 2011 and was pushed out. Um, and this occasioned some strong uh, reactions, uh, both you know, mm-hmm. in favor of finding a new chaplain and people very upset that that a Catholic <laughs> speaker of the house would. Fire a Catholic priest. Like, firing a priest when you don't really have to and you're on your way out seems kind of weird. So some people have said that, is this a sign of anti-Catholic bias? Or other people are just like, oh, you know, it just shows an ignorance of pastoral ministry. You know, which I I think I kind of side with the latter. I think What do you mean ignorance of pastoral ministry? So as chaplain, Pat Conroy, you mentioned that one of his roles is that he has to serve in 
at pastoral to all the members of, of the house, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, but a few people have said that he's failed in that capacity. Um, and they're saying and one that person mentioning that it should be that the next person man. should be a family yeah. man, someone who's yeah. married. Yeah, because he was I believe it was Representative Mark Walker who said that, you know, a lot of us are family men and women. We s- struggle with things that a priest might not be familiar with. And it would be nice to have someone who understands where we're coming from. Yeah. You know? So that could be seen as like a dog whistle, like, oh, obviously a Catholic could never fulfill mm-hmm. the role of chaplain because most of them do not have children. So just to backtrack a little. So he was forced to resign by Paul Ryan, correct? Yes. Um, and this is where a lot of the pushback is coming from people in the House. And some of the reasons that were listed for his firing were, Zach? So some people brought up that there was a prayer that he gave while they were debating on the tax bill. Pat Conroy had the gall to mention that this might affect the poor and the needy and we should take them into account. Um that was too deemed too political. A bridge politic- too far. Yeah, a bridge too far uh, to mention the concerns of all people on the floor of the house. But we don't know for sure that this was like the reason. There are other concerns about um, such as uh, uh, yeah. other reasons that have been given are he invited a Muslim chaplain to mm-hmm. deliver a prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, some people had issue with that. But Paul Ryan's office uh, has been sort of unclear about what the specific reason is. Yeah, but it also is a bit controversial because. People have been throwing around the word fired. Um, in truth, Father Conroy turned in his resignation, which read, at your request, here is my resignation. Uh, so by, all, you know, calling a spade a spade, that is being fired. Right. Um, if someone asked you to resign, uh, it's just sort of nicely showing you the door. But that raises questions of whether, uh, you know, Paul Ryan should have consulted other people, mm-hmm. whether he has the authority to right. fire the chaplain. Because he doesn't, he doesn't have the power to I, fire him. I thought, you know, and Father Conroy said it, it was my understanding that I serve at the discretion of the speaker. Mm-hmm. So kind of yes, but also it affects the entire House. And so some House No, a members, Republican member of Congress wrote a letter to Speaker Paul Ryan um, asking uh, the speaker to reinstate Patrick Conroy because he did think that his, you know, uh, asking for this resignation without consulting the entire house uh, broke, if not, if not the rules, the, like the norms and the, the spirit. Col- yeah. Yeah. Um, so we'll see if that goes anywhere. So Olga, do you have our next story? Yes, I do. This story is coming out of the Catholic school in Michigan. Last week, students were greeted by ponchos with the following message. If your dress does not meet our formal dance dress requirements, no problem. We've got you covered. Literally. This is our modesty poncho, which you will be given at the door. Now, Full full update. Modesty poncho. <laughs> full update. Since then, after students and parents were a little outraged at this, um, the principal said, we are not forcing students to wear modesty ponchos at prom. We are just reminding them of our dress code. They are a Catholic school, so they have a specific dress code. Now, I have some thoughts about this, but I want to hear what you guys think first. What my well, one modesty poncho is great, <laughs> but also not good <laughs> enough. I feel like they had opportunities to get some alliteration in there. Yeah, but purity poncho, <laughs> modesty moo moo. There's so many other ways they could have gone with the naming. Okay, okay that's okay. um. I mean, yes. Yeah, so I do not think that I'm not in favor of shaming women. I do think it's reasonable for. Any school. I went to a public school. We had a dress code. Mm-hmm. There were certain things we couldn't wear. Um, and, and you know, yes, this does fall more on women because they tend to wear clothes that can be more revealing and that is against the dress code. But it, there are rules for guys, too. Like, they couldn't have profanity on their shirts and that sort of thing. So I'm in favor of having a standard of dress um, when it's fairly 
applied. Yeah, I I agree with Ashley. I'm not in favor of body shaming, which this has clearly made a lot of students feel as if they are being shamed, number one. And number two, it's sexist, right? Because it's only directed to female students. And also, you're placing the responsibility solely on the female students. Like, you guys have to address a specific way because, God forbid, you show up to revealing what's that going to do to your male peers, you know? Well, well, and it just adds to this theory that modesty... Mm-hmm. In like a, a modest culture, mm-hmm. the only course of action we have against that is to tell women what to right. wear and what not right. to wear. I mean, like I have heard of women being like kicked out of prom uh, for you know their dresses not being up to s- standard. So no, like a modesty poncho is shaming and like meant to be like un- unattractive and you know will ruin your prom. You're not going to stay at prom if you have to wear a poncho, but. Maybe like a modesty shawl that you can put well, on. Well, it sounds like that's what they're doing here. <laughs> and that is that is a pastoral move. Right, right. right. Yeah, because they said they're not going to force students to wear the modesty poncho, but they will have shawls or wraps that okay. the female students will have to wear if, again, they don't, um, if the school dictates that they're not in line with the dress code. Yes. All right. What's next, Zach? So our next story comes from the Midwest also. Uh, this is coming from Pittsburgh, where the Diocese of Pittsburgh announced that it announced earlier this year that it was going to close 60 percent of its parishes. Wow. Wow. Yes. That's so a a huge number. Um, And this week they announced the official plans on how they were going to do that. So the official count is 188 parishes across six counties are going to merge into 57 parishes. Wow. Yes. That's significant and drastic, and I don't know if we've seen anything like that in the United States. Yeah, but um, you're happy about this, right? I know this is your hobby horse. It is. I One of my, if you give me a, a, a beer in a bar and ask me, Zach, what are you passionate about? <laughs> one of my, I have many things that I like to talk about, but one of them is that too many parishes are kept open. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I see this as the Diocese of Pittsburgh getting ahead of a lot of problems that are already existing mm-hmm. and to come. Um, and saying, okay, how are we going to be good stewards of the resources that we have given church attendance? Yeah. And I think, I think we have the same end goal in mind. I think, I think you could be a little bit more compassionate towards the people whose parishes are closing and like see that or feel that as like a real loss. Um, I could. You could. There are plenty of people being compassionate towards them right now. There need to be more people kind of nudging them along, I think. Yeah. Um, and no, so, like, that goes to, like, how it goes to how the diocese and archdiocese approach this process. Like, it really does need to have buy-in from parishioners from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know enough about Pittsburgh to say whether they've done it well or and, not. And, you know, you have some people in Pittsburgh who are say- saying, like, this is really hard, but, you know, we're fundraising just so we can keep the, we're doing all this fundraising and effort just to keep the lights mm-hmm. on in a building and not evangelizing. Yeah. Right. And right. and if you think about like the opportunity cost of that, like in, instead of like, if you don't focus on what like you're losing when you lose your childhood parish or the place where you got married and instead thought about like, you know, what if those funds were instead used for like a young adults program that like really got people excited and involved mm-hmm. um, or a great music program that like brought people to mass. Mm-hmm. Um, I think taking that mindset is is important when we're making these really like painful decisions for for everyone involved. Right, right. And this is something that we discussed with a lot of our listeners during this week's uh, Patreon chat. And I think while it's I, I feel bad for a lot of communities, I feel bad. No one wants to lose their home church. But as someone who is in the process of shopping for a 
Catholic parish right now, it is super disheartening to go to places and see how empty they are. Like I went to one church that is predominantly Italian. Half the pews are empty. Then I went to another one that's predominantly like half is actually pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. Then I went to one that is like half full and it's predominantly Latino. And I'm like, what if we just combine both of these Mm -hmm. and then force these two very different communities, two very different cultures to just integrate? Yeah. And that's that's another great. I, you know, that's another benefit that you can point to. Like we would have more diverse parishes right. if we didn't have the Polish church and the Irish church and yeah. the Latino mm-hmm. church and the black church. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and this is one of the things that I really appreciate about the approach that the Diocese of Pittsburgh is taking in, in that it's been sort of, you know, macro level the whole time. So as a parishioner, it doesn't feel like, oh, you know, Bishop is closing my parish because, you know, we didn't get enough people to come. It's more like, OK, what are we doing to build up the kingdom of God? Uh, as a diocese and you know okay i'm gonna have to make some sacrifices but i know exactly what those sacrifices are going towards right um maybe not completely because you don't know how it's going to work out but you know there's a a team effort going on here yeah um so 60 percent of parishes is good i think we could i think we can go to 75 (laughs) oh my god (laughs) listeners what do you think Have, have you experienced your parish closing um or merging with another one uh would you resist that would you welcome that let us know what you think at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. So joining us today via Skype is Wajahat Ali. He is a contributing op-ed writer for The New York Times and producer of the Emmy-nominated series The Secret Life of Muslims. Welcome to Jesuitical. Thank you so much, young Jesuits and Catholics, for having me. Uh, your friendly neighborhood token moderate Muslim. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm going to begin every single uh, statement today as a moderate Muslim. As a moderate Muslim, <laughs> I would like to say. <laughs> um, so first question, The Secret Life of Muslims, uh, which was renewed for a second season last year, um, it's a show that profiles a different uh, Muslim American in their everyday life. So why did you want to make this show? Sure. So first, I'd like to say I'm really uh, appreciative and honored that the Jesuitical uh, has invited me. Uh, because I'm a product of uh, Jesuit education. I went to an all-boys Jesuit Catholic high school. Oh, yeah. Well, which one? Oh, Shout them out. <laughs> yeah, Bellarmine in uh, San Jose, which was next to Santa Clara University, where I was the token Muslim, but they were really good to me. <laughs> and for those young Catholics who are listening, you know, like when you go to an all-boys or all-girls uh, Jesuit Catholic school, secretly but not so secretly, they kind of want to make you into Jesuits. Uh, mm-hmm. And so every semester they teach you like, under the guise of like, you know, Bible as literature or social justice or Christian morality, you know, like every semester there's a, one of those religious studies classes and I dominated every semester for four years in all boys <laughs> Jesuit Catholic high school. And the funny thing is, is Father Allender, every semester used to read the top grades mm-hmm. and he was me, which had to leave the Muslim, followed by Kalyan Neelam Raju, the Hindu, followed by <laughs> Naveed Mustafavi, the lapsed Persian Muslim. And you can hear... Father Allender's like Jesuit heart just crack a little bit. Just heard it oh. crack. <laughs> Why do you think but, that is? Because I mean, could you imagine like uh, like who's the nerd who like knows the Bible verses and like can tell you about mm-hmm. Jesus' parable? Mm-hmm. Not the Catholics. Can you tell me the difference between like uh, you know the Immaculate Conception versus the Miraculous Conception? Would you have to leave the Muslim? And so after after a while, they're like, would you have anyone but you? And the, but the reason why I mention is is because. Um, that I encountered the Bible and 
Catholicism and Christianity for the first time. Uh, but the stories were so similar mm -hmm. and the prophets were so similar and the values were so similar that I was so into it, which is why I nerded out. And uh, the whole motto of service for others just really helped me. So thank you, Jesuits. I appreciate the education. Um, <laughs> and specifically, you know, that value of service and education and reaching out is kind of what informed a secret life of Muslims. And it began, believe it or not, like six years ago, seven years ago, we tried to launch it. Seven years ago, people were like, okay, this is really interesting, but whatever. And we were like, no, listen, trust us. Like the, the there is both Islamophobia or anti-Muslim bigotry is building. And at the same time, we want to be proactive. So but people was, were skeptical of the project? People were very skeptical of the project. Uh, who would care? If you're a person of color or a minority or a woman, oftentimes you're asked, well, how will the mainstream appreciate your story? And mm -hmm. that's usually code word for white and male. Right. Uh, and people of color get it all the time. Also, this, this concept of, well, you Muslims, just like you blacks, just like you women, you whine and complain so much, whatever. It's not that big of a deal, this anti-Muslim bigotry. Ironically, it was the election of Trump that finally put us over the hump. Mm -hmm. And five years later, we got the funding and enough partners to say, holy crap, we need this. And what it was is, you've seen it, and if you can see it online, like a collection of very, very well-made, short three to five minute videos, either highlighting narratives of American Muslims or just us responding to the, some of the stuff that we have to go through um, in a humorous way. And it came out last year. And because in a weird way, a crisis presents an opportunity, more and more people were on the fence, more and more diverse audiences were like, huh, we should really get to know about the American Muslim experiences because we see it in the news now. And once that type of bigotry is happening from the commander in chief, maybe we have a problem. And so in a strange way, something that was gestating for six years launched and was appreciated and accepted thanks to, in part, the Trump administration. Right. Do you well, have a favorite episode? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think I like a lot of them. But um, so one of the narratives, if you will, of um, Reis Buyan, this is a young uh, Mangaladeshi immigrant who came to this country, I believe it was in Texas. And right after 9-11, a, a white supremacist came in and wanted to just get revenge. He took a shotgun, shot him in the face, left him for dead. He survived. And I think his name was Mark Stroman. And then race using his Muslim values said, I forgive him. And I actually, he actually tried to get him off of uh, the death row and death penalty. And then Mark Stroman realized like, Oh my God, this person who I shot is a human being. who's one of the few people who actually is trying to empathize with me. He asked for his forgiveness. They became friends. And even though that appeal to get him off death row wasn't successful, it created this bond. And that ended up being like one of the most viral videos because people, I think, really related to the narrative and story of race, immigrant, a person who was a victim of a hate crime, but used his values, his religious, spiritual values to be a better person and changed the heart of the guy who shot him in the face with a shotgun. Yeah. Um, and I think that was probably the most powerful story. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that this show wasn't picked up until after President Trump won. Um, how has his presidency changed how, you know, non-Muslim Americans perceive Muslims um, mm -hmm. and and the experience of being a Muslim American? the past? Yeah, I mean, year? Look, uh, it's, it's a good question, because, look, when I was growing up, I was born and raised in the Bay Area, California, the son of Pakistani Muslim immigrants, where my parents thought it would be hilarious not to teach me English until I was five. I was in ESL. <laughs> they got uh, you. <laughs> who needs English? Yeah. Uh, uh, and, but it was California, it was diverse, a lot of ethnicities. And so even though I was a token Muslim in school and Catholic school, nonetheless, there was an open space 
for me to share my narratives and stories. And so I was protected from a lot of the hazing that a lot of kids now are witnessing. And I joke that the worst thing I was called growing up was Gandhi, which is actually a compliment. So I used to say, like, thank you for comparing me to a, a religious leader who, along with millions, overthrew 300 years of imperialism. And then the people used to go, shut up, you're fat, and they punch me in the stomach. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I was a fat kid growing up. But now you fast forward, and we have a huge spike in discrimination against Muslim kids born and raised in this country, not just from their students, but from teachers, especially young Muslim girls wearing the hijab. You have a huge spike in employment discrimination uh, with Muslimy names. You have anti-Muslim hate crimes against those who look Muslimy, including Sikh and Hindu, uh, Hindu Americans and uh, Arab American Christians. And with Trump, you, you're seeing essentially the mainstreaming of anti-Muslim bigotry that was always there, but has bubbled to the mainstream and mainstream political parties where people are saying President Obama is a Muslim. Sharia is a threat to America. Like, no, no, I've gone around the world. Most Muslims have no idea what Sharia is. It's like asking a Catholic, explain canon law. And people are like, dude, I barely, I barely even go to church. I don't know. Um, or like asking Jews to explain halakha law, right? Like most people have no idea. But now Sharia has become a talking point for elections. And now the Muslim men, which I think is unfortunately going to pass five to four in the Supreme Court decision. I think. I hope not. Um, that has become mainstreamed. And under the guise of a national security threat, people are willing to marginalize and excise millions of their fellow Americans. And this has happened before, right? Like Catholics, you guys have gone through this. It happened mm -hmm. in the 40s and 50s to Irish Catholics. Jews, you have gone through this. It is literally a remake. And now, right now in 21st century Taggart, the villain has been replaced with Muslims. In 1949, Paul Blanchard wrote a book, American Freedom and Catholic Power. Educated activist, liberal uh, attorney who warned about the Catholic threat invading America. Mm -hmm. They would outbreed the mainstream population. They would never integrate. Watch out for them. It was a bestseller. Ten years later, it got re-released, became a bestseller again, and it coincided with the rise of this young man named John F. Kennedy, who was about mm -hmm. to become president. And if you guys remember, John F. Kennedy had to go through a loyalty test where he had to say he would be loyal to the United States and not to the Pope. Yep. Well, they weren't wrong. And, we have taken over the Supreme Court. And <laughs> I, mean, you, I mean, you guys are killing it, right? You guys, and, and that's the sad part is that you have now exactly what you said. Is I tell people, if you take a DeLorean back to the 40s and said, all right, of the nine justices, the majority would be Catholics, then there'd be Jews, and then there'd be a Neil Gorsuch. Yeah. People the, would the be token like, Protestant. The, the token Protestant. People say, get the F out of here. That's a joke. Yeah. And the fact that Catholics might be the one to implement this uh, Muslim ban, because that's what it is. It's a Muslim ban, let's be honest, is it shows you we don't learn from our we don't learn from our mistakes. And do you ever you mentioned that one thing that has changed for people of color under this administration is that, you know, all of the racism that we have always dealt with being in this country is now we see it much more explicitly in television. So do you ever you touched on this a little bit. Do you ever get tired or despaired like what do you do in those moments? Because you've been covering this. You've been covering the Muslim American yeah. experience for quite some time. So how do you avoid those feelings of desperation? Yeah, like imagine things weren't great after 9-11. I mean, you've written about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, Look, let's connect 9-11 into now. Mm -hmm. I was a 20-year-old UC Berkeley senior. I was a student leader at that time uh, of the UC Berkeley Muslim Students Association. The two towers fall and overnight you get thrust into this role of being an accidental activist, ambassador, mm. and leader, and representative 
of 1.7 billion people and 1400 years of Islamic civilization. And God forbid if you make a mistake, not only would I be personally indicted uh, and convicted, your entire peoples are investigated, interrogated, indicted, convicted, and sentenced by a nameless judge, jury, and executioner who will always hold their loyalty as suspect. So we did the work and it was, you know, to answer your question, it was exhausting because it's exhausting being a walking Muslim Wikipedia, mm-hmm. always mm-hmm. having to explain Islam and Quran and Sharia and Prophet Muhammad and, and Hakim Olajuwon and Biryani <laughs> and Fatah and Fatwas and Hamas and Hamas, right? And Iran and everything. <laughs> um, and if you make a mistake, you're effed. And then we thought, okay, we'll do the work and hopefully things will get better. And regardless of what you think of Obama, the election of Obama was so symbolic because America elected a biracial man, son of a Kenyan Muslim. That's huge. And we thought, okay, maybe things will get better. But I was always wary because I thought the internal, the problems got stuffed underneath, if you will, uh, the bed. Uh, And a lot of these forces that we were following, you know, love became intersectional after Trump. Well, so did hate. And so the anti-Muslim sentiment merged with the anti-immigrant sentiment, which merged with the anti-refugee sentiment, which merged with with the anti-woman sentiment, anti-Semitic sentiment. And now fast forward 16 years, that minority voice has been empowered vis-a-vis the election of Trump. And this is either the death rattle or death march of that type of hate. I think it's the death rattle. But if we're looking at what's happening in Europe, it seems to be a death march. So this role was kind of like forced on you to be a defender and explainer of Islam. How how it, has that role affected your personal faith? Because like we get to like talk uh, about prayer and like where we found God. We don't have to explain the catechism to people every episode. Or else. Yeah, <laughs> explain the catechism or else. I just throw it at people. It's a very heavy book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then you just go up and make them ashy. And they're like, why are you touching my forehead? <laughs> uh, can you imagine if I did that? Yeah. Uh, oh, man. Yeah. But that no, but you made a good point because let's stick with Catholics and Jews. Literally, if you have studied this and we have, it's the exact same playbook that was used against Catholics and Jews. And before there was uh, protests against mosques, there was protests against Catholic churches. But what Catholics and Jews have that many Muslims don't is the cloak of whiteness. Most of them are white. And so you guys were able to blend into um uh, white supremacy America, right? Like the the whiteness aspect of America. Muslims, there's no uh, majority ethnicity. 25% or so are black or of African descent, 25% South Asian, 20% Arab American, the rest miscellaneous. And and so we, just like many African Americans and Latinos and Japanese Americans who've been in this country forever, aren't really allowed to integrate uh, or assimilate. We're still seen as suspects, not just due to our religion, but also due to our ethnicity. Um, And so it does become exhausting and you have to ask yourself, where do I draw the line between always explaining myself and appealing to people's hearts and winning them over? And then also realizing, you know what, I don't have time for this. I'm just going to bum rush the show and move forward. And it's your job to catch up. Hmm. I think you need both because when, once you do the latter, what you're trying to basically saying is, okay, and you have every right to, I'm exhausted. F you, I don't have time for this. Life's too short. But then I think you miss an opportunity to win over people who mean well, but just are succumbing to ignorance and misinformation, right? Like, I don't think they're born out of the womb hating Muslims. Uh, it's just that they've been programmed. The thought I got about Muslims and Islam was Hollywood movie, Hollywood movies, TV shows, and the news. I would think we're the most terrifying people on earth. Mm-hmm. I would think we're ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Homeland, like, you know, activist agents. Yeah. And so then what I try to do is reach out 
talk to Catholics and Jews in the Rust Belt and, and go to the whitest places in America. And some people think I'm naive, but what I've seen is people come up and say to me straight up, this is the first time I ever talked to a Muslim. Thank you for talking to me. I had a lot of these fears. I know intellectually I'm not supposed to have them, but emotionally I can't help it. Uh, you gave me food for thought. And so that's the struggle and the balance. Where do you resist and where do you reach out? Where do you down and where do you say enough's enough? And is that is that informed by your, your faith and the values you, you've learned from that? Yeah, we talk a lot about as like Catholics and like how prayer is so important. If you're going to be an activist, it needs to be grounded in a prayer life to make sure you're you're you know, talking to God to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons and you can just like have the energy to do it. What does that look like in your day-to-day life? Where where does faith sustain you? I really appreciate you asking me that. Uh, and one thing I'll mention is one thing that I'm really worried about is if you look at a lot of the progressive activists or even right-wing activists, people are so passionate, well-intentioned, you see an utter lack of spirituality. You don't see much spiritual anchoring there, which reflects in their posturing and their rhetoric. And I see this a lot with Muslims and it worries me. And especially when it comes to many who are liberal or progressive, uh, because religion has been oftentimes used as a sword by our religious communities, they get so disaffected by it. Women, LGBT, minorities, they're like, I'm done with this. But then you, you vacate the moral and spiritual high ground to people who are deliberately hijacking it for political ideologies. That happens in Catholic traditions, evangelical traditions, Jewish traditions, Muslim traditions. So what I try to do, everything that I do, is really anchored in spirituality and religion. And people who know me know that. Like my, my, my articles and reaching out, education. I think those spiritual values animate my entire career, to be honest. And they help inform my intention and my action. And of course, I fall short. Uh, but that's not an excuse. I still have that spiritual rope I hold on to to help me become a better person, more refined. And I think that spiritual anchor also helps nourish us because rage and anger, I do not believe, are sustainable for individuals or communities. It causes self-immolation. And I see that happening a lot with people in the media or those who are activists. The, it, it consumes relationships and marriages. It's just not healthy. And so I try to keep spiritually grounded personally, for my, for my marriage, for my kids, because at the end of the day, this will pass. Um, and I believe in a creator and I believe I will be called to account for what I've done in this earth. And I want to have that spiritual connection to be strong and, and for that to animate my intentions and actions across the board. And, and prayer, and prayer really helps you with that, you know, praying, even taking a few, like everyone's about mindfulness now. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, we've been on mindfulness <laughs> for thousands of years. <laughs> well, something we talk about, and you've mentioned like having really great experiences with Catholics and Jesuits, but there's like, there are alarming rates of Islamophobia in Catholicism um, and among no. everyday Catholics. <laughs> I know it, it sounds surprising, but like, is there something you think you, you want out of Catholics or is it, was that your experience in school? Did you face yeah. any of that? I, you spoke positively, no, but in school I spoke positively and I remember in my five year anniversary, like 10 years ago, this was after nine 11, you get these ha ha jokes, which aren't jokes. Like people come up to your former friends and stuff and they go, Hey, don't be a terrorist. Now watch. Ha ha ha. Ha ha. Uh, oh, God, you're not going to stuff now, are you? And then you see this, this, this current uh, of support for the Trumpian politics. 65% of white Catholics went for Trump. Uh, 80-plus percent of white evangelicals, right? Uh, and then it, it makes you really think, is this the type of person you're hitching your wagon to? I read the Bible. I studied under Catholics. This is the antithesis 
of the Catholicism that inspired me. And are you hitching your ride onto this for political purposes? And if so, is that what Jesus would do? And I really mean that. If Jesus came back and was resurrected, he would walk uh, the path. Would he go, you know, what would he do to a lot of these lobbyists and, and men and women who use and abuse religion and Catholicism for power? Would he be with them or would he be with the DACA recipient and the person who's on food stamps and the person who's poor and needs health care and the Muslim refugee? It's a good question for Catholics to ask, really. Um, and if there is a disconnect, why is there a disconnect? And maybe it's time for the moderate Catholics, I'm joking, to stand up and reclaim their religion, because that's what Muslims are asked to do all the time. We're asked to apologize for criminal acts done by criminal actors we've never met in countries we've never visited. And for me, as a Muslim who's taught by Catholics and studied Christianity, and I say this with utmost sincerity, it saddens me that evangelical Christians and Catholics are hitching the Trump wagon. And I'm like, dude. This is not the Jesus that I encountered, and these are not the Christian values I encountered. What are you doing to your religion? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and if I have any equity to say that as an outsider, it's because I was taught by Catholics, and I became a better Muslim as a result of my Catholic education. Thank you so much for that, Wajahad. So one final question for you. Um, if you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, who would it be and why? Wow. <laughs> That's a good question. Wow. Um, I like Pope Francis. Let's let's go with the Pope. All right. <laughs> I actually I think don't know is, if anyone has ever no, picked Pope Francis. No, this is Francis, the first time a, someone has picked him. Yeah. Wow, okay. Because I don't agree with everything. You don't have to agree with everything, but he's a Jesuit. And he has made a concentrated, proactive effort to bring into the forefront the teachings and service of the Jesus that he knows. And deliberately making pronouncements and doing actions which have been very controversial and cut across conservative political Catholic ideology, uh, meaning those people who are using and abusing Catholicism for political agendas. He has stood up for the refugees. He has washed the feet of the poor. He has stood up and asked for uh, dialogue and diplomacy. Uh, And he has, I think, taken Catholicism back to its roots of love and service. And there's a reason why so many non-Catholics are like, if I was a Catholic, that dude would be my Pope. Um, Not perfect, of course, but no one is. But uh, I want to give props where props are due. So let's say Pope Francis. I can now see how you were like the teacher's pet in Catholic school. (laughs) You speak speak more eloquently about the Pope than I can. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, we should look, we have shared values, right? That's the thing people forget, that Muslims see Catholics and Christians and Jews as people of the book, as cousins, and not just mm-hmm. as a talking point, not just as a bumper sticker that you put out there, but like literally it's the, for us, it's the same shared wealth, same prophets. You, that's, there's a reason why you never see Muslims ever disrespect Jesus or Mary. There's an entire chapter in the Quran called Maryam, uh, Mary, uh, with the immaculate uh, birth, the fact that she's a friend of God who gave the miraculous conception to Jesus. You see Jesus as a major prophet um, who died. Wasn't didn't die for our sins, but died and, and you know brought the Injil, which you guys call the New Testament and the message, uh, and is one of the major prophets uh, of Islam. And so you see the Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael and Noah and Moses and those values and those stories in the Quran. So there's so many similarities, and there's that shared values that we should use in America to help the poor, to help make food banks, to help undocumented immigrants, to help end racism, to help um, end police brutality. And so the fact that we're unable to see that and instead 
inspire our worst angels to attack each other is very disheartening. And which is why we need more people to reclaim their faith in the true spirit of Jesus. And I mean this, to go back to love and service for all people, even our enemies, because that's what Jesus did. Even the people who spit at him, he made space in their heart to include them and he eventually forgave them. And that's, that's kind of what we need. We need more reconciliation, love and forgiveness. And that's why we are so grateful you came on our show. Yeah, thank you. This <laughs> so has been you. great. And where can people find your work? On the Googles. You can Google <laughs> yes. my name. Uh, I have a very active Twitter handle, at okay. Wajahat Ali, on Facebook, and I try to respond. Okay, awesome. cool. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. That was really fun. I yep. appreciate it. All right. See ya. Bye. Bye. Now it's time for some listener feedback. First, a shout out to our new patrons, to our Patreon site. Um, we've got a new VIP, Kelly Sprissler. So Ooh, thank you, Shout out to Kelly. you. Um, and also new, oh, two VIPs, Creed Caldwell too. And a shout out to Jesuitical superfan, Diana Perez. And Zach, we have some exciting news on the listener uh, feedback front, right? Yes. So we're hoping to facilitate more friendships, more conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because we've gotten a taste of conversations on this Patreon page. Like we've had we've had monthly chats, uh, Google chats, video mm-hmm. hangouts um, with our patrons. We have a discussion board there. And now we want to kind of like branch out. While everyone is moving off Facebook, we're deciding <laughs> the time is right to move in, get in on Facebook. Uh, so this week we launched a Facebook group. Uh, mm-hmm. You can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Um, we, we link to it on our Twitter page. We're going to link to it in our show notes. Um, but if you have a Facebook, you want to post interesting articles that mm-hmm. you think w- deserve comment or we should do an SOT on, mm-hmm. uh, post or it there. Or if you've got some really cool gifts, which some people have already started posting, shout out to Robert Christian. Yeah. Um, but and- like what I like about the idea of doing a Facebook page um, is like we don't want just you guys talking to us and mm-hmm. us talking to each other. But like, I don't know. This is like, I feel like it's a community now. And yeah. I'm sure there are plenty of listeners mm-hmm. who would like enjoy talking with each of other course. and talking about like the Catholic news of the day mm-hmm. and getting each other's perspective. Because right. we love getting your emails and engaging with you guys. And we want you guys to do it with each other because you guys are pretty cool. So and last thing I didn't. uh Tell Ashley we were going to do this because I didn't want to embarrass her. But a lot of people have also written in it to say how moved they were by Ashley's openness uh, and sharing her own experience with mm-hmm. loneliness. Um, and so th- I want to thank everyone else who wrote in and also thank Ashley mm-hmm. um, for being so open. And it's moving a lot of people. And it's gotten me to think about my own relationship to loneliness. Um mm-hmm and how I deal with that. So thank you to our listeners and thank you to Ashley. Yeah, thank you, Ashley. No, and yeah, I've seen those responses and they've been really moving. And so, you know, let's let's all get together on the Facebook page and talk to each other. (laughs) 
All right, speaking of that, Constellations and Desolations. Yeah, Let's the do part it. of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So I've got um one of the, our go-tos, Desolation, that becomes a Constellation. Okay. Um, so I've mentioned to you guys, I am in the process of finding a Catholic parish, but I still want to stay with the non-denominational one that I go to in East Harlem. But one of the things that I've been struggling with lately is I'm having a lot of problems with the theology of the current church that I go to. I love the community. Um, and I loved how much I've grown in the past year. So for a while, I was very much like, they don't agree with me on certain issues, so I'm going to leave. I'm not going to engage with these people. They don't deserve it. Um, but this week, especially, there's been this kind of shift in my energy, and I've been much more willing to be like, okay, no, you can't just shun people who think differently from you. You actually have to make an effort to get to know them. And I feel like what's been consoling about that is just kind of God giving me the grace to to kind of take that initiative. Um, so I've reached out to my pastor and we're going to meet and talk over some stuff. Um, but it's been really consoling to kind of get to that point. And I wouldn't have gotten through this without, you know, the grace of God moving me. So, And you responding to it. Yeah. 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 That's great. What about you, Zach? This week I've got a desolation. Uh, this one is related to uh, my sort of professional life. So I recently came out of uh, this big uh long, long meeting um, where there was a lot of energy and a lot of excitement about uh, doing some new things, um, new projects. Um, I And I, I shared that excitement coming out of that. But then all of a sudden, uh, I started to get overwhelmed by all that needed to be done. And I very quickly made it about myself and uh, all the work that I need to do and how if these things don't get done, how they're going to reflect on me. And once it became all about me, I was responding out of fear and not able to listen to where uh, where God is calling me. Uh, so that's a classic evil spirit move, mm. I'm told, is to you know draw you into yourself so you can't see uh, the bigger picture and where the voice of God is leading you. Yeah, so. and like where your teammates are gonna, like it's not only God is gonna be there, but they're gonna be there and they're uh -huh. gonna be contributing, contributing and, you know, yeah, helping you along the way. That's right. So. That's my desolation. Okay. Ashley, what do you got? Um, I have a consolation, another another one of those consolations that show that like just because it's sad or painful mm -hmm. <laughs> doesn't mean it's not a consolation. Um, so I uh, I edit the faith section of the magazine and part of that is uh, running this generation faith contest where young people, high schoolers and colleges, uh, college students write in um, about their faith journey. And so over the weekend, I was reading through like 60 essays from high school and college students um and like a good number of them touched were just like very like raw and honest um a lot of them talked about the pain of divorce or like broken friendships and that sort of thing um and i found myself just like crying at all like every time i was reading a, a story i was mm -hmm. like i was just like crying i was like ah how am i gonna like judge these i can't even like get through it um and this is new for me like i this is I don't like admitting this, but like I there was a long period of my life where I like didn't cry and like in in college like my nickname was like Ice Queen because I would like watch a sad movie Ow. and like <laughs> wouldn't be able to cry like I really didn't and I wanted to cry like I was mm -hmm. like what's wrong with me like is my heart broken like I not not like heartbroken but like is it actually non functioning mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I think uh, so me just like crying over these essays gave me the opportunity to reflect, reflect on the fact that like some of like the painful personal things that I've been through in the last year have really like opened up my heart to like pain and, and suffering in a way, but 
in my own experience, I had it, it was painful, but I also was able to like see Christ there in a new way. Like I've you know I've always like gotten the whole like Paschal mis- mystery thing, but skipped over the Good Friday pain suffering. Mm-hmm. Jesus is there part and like been like okay, skip to the resurrection and be joyful even despite the pain. Uh, but I was able to be like no, like I in these painful experience, I felt God there. And I feel like that has made me more capable of, of empathizing with people who are going through those periods. Cause the kids who like were going through divorce or heartbreak, they didn't see the, the next thing they were just, mm-hmm. they were just hurting and writing about it. Um, and so I just like felt very, very close to them in that, mm-hmm. uh, in a way that I haven't felt before. And I know, and I know that's God working because that is how God came to us in, in weakness and in suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my mm-hmm. consolation this week. That's really beautiful, Ashley. And you were able to like go back through things that happened in the past and mm-hmm. walk with yeah. God through those. Mm-hmm. That's really, really beautiful. Yeah. All right. On that note, Get us out of here. Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Zach Gear. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering and design by Angelou Jesus Canta. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. And now find us on Facebook at Facebook slash groups slash Jesuitical. Facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. There we go. Um, and please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. We're kind of in a review drought right now. So if you guys could like help us out with a mm-hmm. few of those, that'd be very much appreciated. Um, and send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. This show was made possible by the Catholic Travel Center, proud partner with America Media. To organize your organization's next pilgrimage, contact Catholic Travel Center at gocatholictravel.com. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week. Boom. Woo-hoo.